Dr. Holmes already read uh, Psalm 3-4, so I'm not going to reread that uh, preliminary to the message. But we'll work back through it uh, as we uh, do an exposition of the passage. But we're looking at Psalm 3, as uh, he noted, and I've entitled the message, How to Get a Good Night's Sleep. (laughs) How to Get a Good Night's Sleep. Uh, Over the past week, there has been, as you know probably better than me, unprecedented uh, political drama in the United States, and it sent shockwaves around the world. There have been numerous riots uh, reported at different places. Uh, I say that you probably are more aware of this than me because last week was opening weekend of uh, modern gun season. And so while the whole world was experiencing turmoil, I was in the deer woods and getting a good night's sleep uh, each night. But there have been rioters uh, protesting, perhaps unwittingly, free elections. They may not be aware of exactly what uh, the implications are of what they're doing, but the fact that they got to vote in, in this particular case, didn't win, uh, is something that they are protesting. But they are shutting down freeways in some cases and destroying private property. You've probably also heard that at universities that some professors have count, uh, canceled classes uh, that in some cases there are cry-ins. Uh, students are allowed to go to safe spaces and are sort of protected. Counselors have been brought in. Uh, even at UCA, down the road from where we are, uh, some professors have canceled class. And one friend of mine, I uh, was in seminary with him a number of years ago, he apparently was for the losing candidate, and he posted this on Facebook. He said this, quote, friends, I need to go off Facebook for a bit. Growing up in Midwest, I encountered regular and traumatic experiences of overt racism from schoolyard teasing to being accosted by boldly professed neo-Nazis on a few occasions, and I did not anticipate how deeply all the reports of Trump-related hate crimes would affect me. I was anxious. I am having trouble sleeping, and I have an irrational visceral feeling of fear in my gut. Even the post-mortem analyses are dredging it up. Uh, My friend is uh, ethnically Indian uh, from the nation of of India, and he has a PhD from uh, an Ivy League school and has done postdoctoral work. He's about my age, and we did our MDivs together. And this is a really interesting thing to me. Uh, He is uh, someone that I wouldn't expect to be having these sorts of experiences. And the traumatic governmental transmission or transition that we are in the process of facing uh, has caused a lot of upheaval for people uh, that some are like us, some are not like us. But governmental transitions and traumatic governmental transitions are the stuff of history. Uh, They're the stuff of lore. And I don't want to minimize the real fear uh, that people may be experiencing in connection to this particular election, but I do want to say, however, that Scripture is not silent about this. It's not silent about it. It has a lot to say to us, both in terms of prescriptive principles for what the Christian is supposed to be doing proactively, as well as it provides to us descriptive accounts of how believers have handled these sorts of things in the past. And this morning we're going to be looking at a passage that gives us a glimpse in the Old Testament of an Old Testament saint as to how to trust God 
in seemingly overwhelming uh, political insurrection. Now, when I selected this passage early in the year, I had no idea that our country would be experiencing the trauma that it's currently experiencing. But this is as appropriate of a psalm, a passage, for this occasion as I can think of. Here in this passage, David's going to show us some things. He's showing us that you can trust in God's sovereignty over national events during governmental transitions, through political intrigue, and despite any of your outward circumstances, whatever they may be. Let me say that again. We're going to learn from David that you, as a believer, as a Christian, can trust in God's sovereignty despite national events, governmental transitions, political intrigue, or any other outward circumstance. And that's really good news for the believer. And we need to be reminded that as Christians, we have certain promises that have been made to us that are sure and absolute that we can stand on. But the unbeliever, he or she has promises too, but they're largely related to promises of judgment. Uh, Unless that person comes to faith and repentance in Christ, this experience that they are having is the closest thing to heaven that they're ever going to get. Uh, Whereas for us, this is the closest thing to hell that we're ever going to get. We have the hope of the gospel. We have sure and certain promises uh, made for us that are positive. The unbeliever has sure and certain promises for him that are not mostly positive. But in this particular passage, I want to challenge you wherever you are. That was traumatic. I want to challenge you wherever you are to examine your level of trust in God, and I want to encourage you to ask a few questions. So I'm going to ask you a few questions and take a minute to jot down the answers that you make to these questions, or at least sort of mentally note them. Question number one, how do I respond when adverse circumstances beyond my control come my way? How do I respond? Another question. Does worry ever keep me awake at night? Does worry keep me awake at night? A third, do I fear man? Another, do I fear unwanted circumstances? Do I fear the loss of something or someone that I love? Do I fear bodily harm? Do I trust in other people for safety? instead of trusting in God. Uh, Those are some questions, maybe some x-ray questions, that we can all ask ourselves. But we can learn uh, some things from David about how to get a good night's sleep despite seemingly overwhelming circumstances in your life. And it just so happens that these are related to political circumstances. This is related to governmental intrigue and transition. And he shows us some things here. Uh, He has some experiences that are far beyond anything that any of us are ever going to experience, worst-case scenario. And we begin by looking at the background, the superscription. This presents to us Roman numeral one, David's problem. Let's take a look at David's problem. Notice the, the superscription. It says, a psalm of David when he fled from Absalom, his son. That's in Hebrew, and I take this to be inspired. A psalm of David when he fled from Absalom. When I look at that, I'm shocked by the irony. 
David named his son Absalom Afshalom for a reason. Afshalom means father of peace. He had another son that he named Shlomo in Hebrew or Solomon, which means peaceable one. David had a desire for his sons, and that was that they would be peaceable, and he had theological motivations for that. Uh, David had been a a man of war, a man of bloodshed, a, a man of God, but who uh, had led uh, sort of a life that was hard. And it was because he was a man of blood, a man of war, uh, blood, uh, bloodshed, a man of war, that he was prohibited by God from building the temple. Uh, in First Chronicles 28.3, David describes this when Second Samuel 7 came along and God made the Davidic covenant with him. It was in that covenant that God told David that it was not for him to build a temple, but that it was for his son. And the reason why, 1 Chronicles 28.3, is this. But God said to me, You shall not build a house for my name because you are a man of war and have shed blood. That was the thing that prohibited David from, from fulfilling his greatest aspiration of building the temple. But it was going to be for his son. And so... With a heart like the one that David had, what would he want for his son perhaps the most? Afshalom, Shlomo, a father of peace, peaceable one, somebody who is not going to be like me, but someone whose kingdom is going to be established consistent with 2 Samuel 7, someone who's going to be able to build a temple for God consistent with 2 Samuel 7. And here we find this horrible irony that this is a psalm composed when David found himself fleeing from Absalom the one for whom he had wanted peace, naming him like that, is now the person who is pursuing his life. That is a problem, a traumatic problem. And we learn some things about Absalom that help us to understand how this particular political intrigue was possible. Uh, if you take a look in Second Samuel 14, we see Samuel Solomon uh, described like this. This is how Absalom is described. Second um, Samuel fourteen twenty five and following description of Absalom. It says, Now in all Israel was no one as handsome as Absalom, so highly praised from the sole of his foot to the crown of his head, there was no defect in him. That's pretty impressive. And when he cut the hair of his head, and it was at the end of every year that he cut it, for it was heavy on him, so he cut it. He weighed the hair of his head at 200 shekels by the king's weight. That's five pounds of hair. Uh, over the course of the year, he grew five pounds of hair. So I, in my mind, the way that it describes him here, there's a figure that comes to the forefront of my mind. There used to be this guy, the, the picture of which would show up on these women's romance novels. This guy's name was Fabio. Fabio had this long, beautiful, curly hair, big head of hair, all these muscles. You know, and he was sort of the iconic uh, romance persona, I guess, that, uh, that women are thinking about when they read these books. So he was on the cover of, of these books. And he was uh, such a, a figure connected to uh, women's fantasies, I suppose, that there was even a commercial made about uh, butter or margarine. You remember how it went? He's holding the parquet, and he says, I can't believe it's not butter. <laughs> and he's got this, uh, this really felt accent. 
that's the, the sort of image that I have in my mind when I think, when I read this description of Absalom. There was not a defect in him. From the sole of his foot to his head, his hair weighed five pounds at the end of the year. And he was a prince. And that is the guy that David is running from. But the reason why he is running from Absalom is because of something that had happened in David's life years before. Uh, David had sinned against God. He had, he had taken the wife of Uriah. He had had da- uh, Uriah killed. And in 2 Samuel 12, we have the judgment of Samuel described there. In that particular passage, that is where Nathan confronts David, and uh, David's immediate confession is, I have sinned against the Lord. And then Nathan's response was, in the text says, Then Nathan said to David, But the Lord has removed your sin. And the structure of that in Hebrew is so dynamic, it's so significant, that when you're reading along in uh, the Leningrad Codex and the Masoretic Text, you rarely come to a section of text that has some special formatting to it. But when you get to that section, it's got special formatting to it. The scribes who wrote out, who copied the Leningrad Codex, the basis for our Hebrew Old Testament, they formatted that section differently because it was meaningful to them. I have sinned, and God's response immediately is, but I have removed your sin. But yet, there are consequences for David's actions. And those consequences include that he was going to uh, be on the run that the sword would not depart from his own family. There were some things that were really personal and intimate to David that he was going to experience. And no doubt he could not have foreseen that the one who was going to pursue his life was going to be his own son that he had named Absalom. So this is David's problem. And that is in the superscription. But take a look at the way this develops in the first line or two. Here's David's his complaint. He addresses God, and he says to him, O oh Lord, this is Yahweh. O oh Yahweh, how my adversaries have increased. Now, depending on your translation, you'll have the word many right there. My adversaries have become many. Uh, in that passage Dr. Holmes read earlier, remember how San, uh, Absalom was standing at the gates of the city, and when the men would come for judgment, they would... Uh, kneel down to, to, to prostrate themselves before him. He would grab them, pick them up, and kiss them. And he would ask what their problem was, and they would relate it to him, and he would say, oh, there is no judge that's going to judge for you. The king hasn't appointed anyone, depending on the translation that you have. If only I were the judge, I would rule in your favor. And that guy would go on his way. Then his adversary at court would come, and Absalom would treat him the same way. So you would have one guy with a problem come, and Absalom would kiss him and say, I'd judge in your favor. Then that guy's opponent would come and prostrate himself, and Absalom would pick him up and kiss him and say, I'd judge in your favor. So he is acting like a politician in this sense. He is promising everything to everybody. I would rule in your favor if only it was up to me. Then when that group is gone, he's looking at the opposite group. I would rule in your favor if it was up to me. Absalom is talking like this. He's acting like this. And over the course of decades, the text says that Absalom stole away the hearts of Israel. That's how it works. So he is spinning out a lie, multiple lies. He, is, he has a plan. He's moving people in his direction. He looks good. He's strong. He's powerful. 
He is winsome. He has the right personality. He's in just the right position to sort of make promises that are believable, and he steals away the hearts of Israel. And so here it says, David says, this is from his perspective, O Lord, how my adversaries have increased. At this point, there's a rebellion that's forming, and it's growing in number, but the rebellion is still covert. At this point, David does not yet know the, uh, all the details of the rebellion, just that it has, it has moved uh, and increased. The hearts of Israel are stolen away. And then he says in the second line of verse 1, many are rising up against me. At this point, the rebellion goes from covert to overt. So Absalom has spun out this lie. He has increased adversaries to come along with him against his father. And we get to this point. Now they are moving upward. They are taking action. They are rising up. And then we have another description of them. And this is shocking. Verse 2. Many are saying of my soul, there is no deliverance for him and God. In Hebrew, as you're reading along, you see assonance, assonance, dissonance. You have something that sounds sort of like sound play. It's very pleasing to the ear. And you get to this line, and you have this shocking dissonance concluded, punctuated with this Salah statement. The idea is stop and think about this for a minute. This is consistent with the judgment coming upon David. Back in 2 Samuel 12, part of the, the condemnation, part of the, uh, the judgment was, this is going to happen to you, David, because you have given occasion to the enemies of the Lord to blaspheme. Here's the blasphemy. These guys are saying, there's no deliverance for him and God. The reason why this is blasphemy is because God has entered into a covenant with David. And they are directly contradicting the terms of the covenant. They don't think that even God can deliver him either. So here, the adversaries have increased. They've come around David. They are coming up against him. Not even God can stop this. And so David says, this is what they are saying of my soul. There's no deliverance for him and God. There's no salvation for him and God. Silah, stop and think about that. So that's his problem. So we have a description, three descriptions of these enemies. And notice, depending on the translation you've got, it's going to sound something like this. Many have increased. Many are rising against me. Many are saying of my soul. There's an emphasis here on the multiplied uh, adversaries of David. They are increasing. There's a lot of them. Now, in contrast to all of those enemies, David now turns his attention to one. Look in verse 3. But you, O Lord. This is David's hope. The person of God, the person of Yahweh, regardless of the many, no matter how uh, terrible this particular rebellion is, led by his own son, David has hope in one person. He says, but you, O Lord, are a shield about me. My glory and the lifter of my head. Uh, this, we can call this David's protection, uh, Roman numeral 2. In Hebrew, it's verse 4. In English, it begins with verse 3. So for us, Roman numeral 2 is David's protection. And here it is. In the midst of his adversity, David recognizes 
and he remembers the ultimate sovereignty of God. So in contradistinction to the many, in contrast to the many, he says, but you, O Lord. And he describes him as a shield. And the particular term that he uses for shield is a, a, a reference to a shield that's used by infantry men to protect themselves in the course of a sword fight. And David here is letting us know, but he's talking to God at this point, directly to God. His confidence is resting in the nature of God. His confidence didn't rest in himself. It didn't rest in his earthly kingship or in his own glory, but it's resting in the person of God. He understands that left to himself, he can't defend himself. But he does have a defense, and that isn't the person of God who has made to him certain, certain and reliable promises. So he's putting his his faith, his hope in God. And he describes God as his glory. That's really rather remarkable because kings are typically uh, sort of the epitome of earthly glory. Uh, those are individuals who, because of their wealth, because of their power, because of their, because of their vast armies, their networks, their resources, even the way that they dress, those guys are the epitome of glory typically. But here we see that David's glory is not in anything that he owns or possesses. His glory is in the person of God who has established his kingdom. That is the source of his glory. It is you, O Lord. You are my glory. And he even goes as far as to say in this verse, he says, My glory and the one who lifts my head, or the lifter of my head, the idea here is that God lifts his head up from despondency. Notice that this is attitudinal. It has to do not with some theoretical faith, but it has to do with an actual encouragement that he, exp- that he experiences at the hands of his encouraging God. He is actually, legitimately, practically encouraged by his Lord. Now, politically, things can't get any worse I can't imagine how they could get any worse for a man than to be in this particular situation. But he's finding hope in the person of God. This is his protection. It's God. So that's his protection, three and four. Despite his state of extreme dejection, despite his state of hopelessness, his thinking here is consistent with that that we see, say, in Isaiah 26.3, where Isaiah says there that this, the steadfast of mind, thou wilt keep in perfect peace because he trusts in thee. You can have peace in the midst of extreme adverse circumstances by trusting in God, by trusting in his promises. Uh, it's not uncommon for us to go through something uh, something that's beyond our control, something that's adverse, and we become discouraged, and then our friend comes alongside us and says, you know, you, you can hope in God. You know, God is sovereign. You know, and, you know, they say whatever they're going to say. And then we might respond with something like, I know, but God is sovereign. Yeah, I know, but. Well, what does that mean? That means we might know this theoretically or theologically in terms of systematic theology, but we don't know it in terms of practical theology. It's not something we are owning in those moments. Perhaps we are, we are doubting God's sovereignty. We don't think he actually is in control. Or maybe we are doubting his goodness. 
because we think that something better for us is available and God's not giving it to us, and so we're doubting his goodness, or maybe we're doubting his wisdom. He has the ability to, to sustain us or to do what is in our best interest. He has that ability because he's sovereign and he's powerful, he's all-powerful. Uh, maybe he's all good and that he wants to do what is best for us, but maybe he lacks wisdom and that he doesn't know what that is. But at some point, when we are experiencing a, a lack of trust in God's faithfulness in times of adverse circumstances, our faith is breaking down at one of those points. We are not trusting in God's sovereignty, or we're not trusting in his goodness, or we're not trusting in his wisdom. At one of those three points, we're experiencing a breakdown. But notice David is not experiencing this breakdown. He's confident in God's sovereignty. It's not minimizing the real pain that he's experiencing. He's experiencing the pain. And there's nothing that's going to undo that. He's trusting in God's sovereignty. He's trusting in God's goodness. He's surprised that they are doubting God's faithfulness. Uh, He's not doubting God's wisdom. In fact, we're going to see something rather remarkable. And this next verse, David's prayer, is the key to the passage. Uh, Every psalm has its own genius based upon its structure. And here is the key to this psalm. This is Roman numeral 3, David's prayer. Here we get to see what's really in his heart. He says this, I was crying to the Lord with my voice, and he answered me from his holy mountain. Okay, so now I've got to give you the explanation for why it's the key to the psalm. A couple of reasons. Number one, this verse is in the logical middle of the psalm. So everything in front of it points to it. Everything after it points back to it. Number two, this is one of three sections concluded with the Silah statement. Another, this verse contains a chiasm, two juxtaposed verbs. This is how the verse reads in Hebrew. He says, Koli el Yahweh ekra. My voice to Yahweh, I cried. The typical sentence structure in Hebrew is verb, subject, object. He inverts it right here. He says, object, subject, verb. Koli el Yahweh ekra. And then that's line A of this verse. Line B of the verse says this, and he answered me from his holy mountain, which means that the two verbs are put back to back so that right here in the middle of the psalm you have this, I called and he answered me. That's the key. The structure of the text emphasizes this idea, everything before it, everything after it. Another thing to note, there's also an inclusio based upon the thematic word many. In Hebrew, it's raf. Remember, we saw that in the opening verse. O Lord, how my enemies have increased. In Hebrew, he says this, Yahweh, ma'rabuzarai. My enemies have increased. He says, rabim kamim alai. Many have risen up against me. Then he says, rabim omarim lenafshi. Many are saying of my soul. Many, many, many. Then you get... On down to this next line, verse 6. It says, I will not be afraid of ten thousands. The Hebrew term is rabot. It's based upon that same root. Right at the middle of that section is, I cried and he answered me. That is another key in the psalm that tells us what the theme of this passage is. I called, he answered me. So this verse is 
the key. I was crying to the Lord with my voice. He answered me from his holy mountain. Now stop and think of this, Selah. This is significant. In spite of the fact that many are coming against me, I cried, God answered me. Why? God is faithful to keep his promises. And David is not in a nice home that's air-conditioned and comfortable like ours or heated or whatever, but he's in the wilderness. Uh, He is out there, and Absalom's army is coming against him. And I don't know that it was literally ten thousands of people, but it was a whole lot of people. Uh, They had increased, and they wanted blood. They were unhappy with his government. They wanted a new government led by Fabio, guy who had promised everything, was winsome, good-looking. They wanted that guy, out with the old, in with the new. Something we can take from this is the reminder that this God that David is trusting in practically, tangibly, really, is actually the God that we believe in. He's the same God. And he's as faithful to his promises to us as he was to the ones he had made to David. John in 1 John 5.14 says this, This is the confidence which we have before him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the request which we have asked from him. Notice the idea we know. That always fascinates me. That means that there is sufficient warrant or justification for this belief. We know that we have the request which we have asked from him if we ask according to his will. He's made us certain promises. Here's one that we all think about, Romans eight twenty six through 28. God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God and are called according to his purposes. This means that I can actually, practically, really take joy in my suffering. I can actually do that. We have security. Uh, Philippians 1.6, Paul says, I am confident of this very thing. That he who began a good work in you will perfect it, bring it to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. This is only encouraging if you actually value this principle. If you don't value the principles that that we're reading about, this is not going to be an encouragement to you. This is why this is of no encouragement to the unbeliever. This is stuff for the child of God. John 6, 37 through 40, Jesus says this, All that the Father gives me shall come to me. And the one who comes to me, I will certainly not cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that of all that he has given me, I lose nothing. But raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who beholds the Son and believes in him may have eternal life. If that is valuable to you, you are Christ, you've got that. And I myself will raise him up on the last day. Peter in 1 Peter 1, 6 and 7 says this. In this, you greatly rejoice. Even though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been distressed by various trials, that the proof of your faith, being more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise 
and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. One of the reasons we can take joy in our suffering is because it reveals the authenticity of our faith. And when you see the authenticity of your faith revealed, that excites you. So even when you are suffering, you see, I am a legitimate Christian because my faith has only increased in the midst of this pressure. It rises to the front who you really are and what's in your heart. That causes the believer joy. James, in James 1, 2-4, says this, Consider it all joy, my brethren. This is radical thinking. Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. And let endurance have its perfect result, that you may be perfect, complete, lacking nothing. And you can read all through the New Testament the attitude of, uh, of Paul, the attitude of the others who, in the midst of great suffering, uh, they consider themselves unworthy to suffer for the cause of Christ. So that takes us to Roman numeral 4, and that is David's peace. So we see the same principle of faith in this Old Testament believer. And he says this in this next verse. This is verse 5, after the Salah. He said, I cried to the Lord with my voice, and he answered me from his holy mountain. Stop and think about that. Now he says in verse 5, this is real. I lay down and slept. Uh, Here's a man who, in the wilderness, surrounded by uh, a mob led by his son wanting to kill him. He has enough confidence in God, it's not going to keep him awake. Uh, That's confidence. That's security. That is practical. That is affecting his life. And then he says, I awoke, for the Lord sustains me. And when you take a look at it in Hebrew, you can translate it like this. I have lain down and slept, which might suggest that this has been an ongoing pattern in his life. He knows what it means to suffer. He knows what it means to be persecuted, to be under distress, but his pattern is that he goes to sleep trusting in God, and God has consistently fulfilled his covenant promise to wake him up, to sustain him, to give him joy. And so he says in verse 6, I will not be afraid of the rabot, the many. I will not be afraid of ten thousands of people who set themselves against me roundabout. What a bold, confident statement. Uh, here is a guy whose faith is, is so strong because it's been tested so much. It has been refined so much. It has risen to the top, and its authenticity is genuine. He's living in the light of that real faith right here. Confidence in God. Brokenhearted? Yes. Grieving? Yes. And you remember in the story, when Absalom dies, he continues to mourn over Absalom such that it causes shame for his own people. And the whole family scenario was awful. Uh, His son's daughter, his, his son's sister, Tamar, his daughter, had been raped by his other son. And it was this this horrible scenario. And David has been grieving for Absalom for decades at this point. And now this. But in the midst of that, David's confidence in God is still pure, strong. It's weathered. He's chiseled. It's proven. 
So he's able to say confidently, I will not be afraid of ten thousands of people who set themselves against me round about. That's David's peace. Now he offers a petition. This would be Roman numeral five. He says, Arise, O God. Save me, O my God. For you have smitten all my enemies on the cheek. This looks like a reference to past experiences. You've smitten them on the cheek. You have shattered the teeth of the wicked. Uh, if you borrow the language or the idea, the, uh, the image of the lion, the lion is something that roars as strong as aggressive. But you break his jaw, you break his teeth, uh, he's uh, impotent, can do nothing. And David is praying, petitioning for God to save him, and he references this past reality. You've done this. He knows what it is to have been delivered by God. And any child of God who has walked with God for any time at all knows this experience at some or another level. Rise up, O Lord. Save me. He uses this the term translated save a couple different times. That is the source of his salvation. And here's where it gets really shocking in this last petition here. He takes, he's so confident in God, he takes the focus off of his situation and he puts it on others. He says this, verse 8, salvation belongs to the Lord. And then he says, your blessing be upon your people, Selah. So at the end of this scenario, he has enough confidence in God to get his focus off of himself, his own traumatic, dire circumstances, and to think about the good of others. He's not wallowing in self-pity at this point. He's, he has enough experience with God to, to know, I need to be concerned about others even more than myself. There's a whole kingdom here that's waiting to be led. He was in that position of leadership, and his real heart was for the good of those people, and so this is what he prays. So here's some things, based upon what we've seen from David, some things that you can do to get a, to get a good night's sleep. Number one, Recognize the sovereignty of God. Specifically, trust in God's promises to you. But as I mentioned, that's only helpful to you if your values are the same as God's values. If you are wanting your own thing and that thing is inconsistent with his will, uh, then you're going to be disappointed. So a second thing to note is this. Align your values with God's values. Align your values with God's values. If you have the attitude, say, of John the Baptist, uh, he must increase, but I must decrease. Your desire is for Christ to be glorified, and you understand the worst thing that can happen is not that you suffer. The worst thing that can happen is not that you don't get your way. The worst thing that can happen is that Christ gets dishonored. If that is your concern, you can pray in God's will for this. It doesn't mean that God is not concerned about your health or whatever it is and is going to assist you with that. But we need to make sure that our values are aligned with God's values. Luke twelve thirty four. remember, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Psalm 37, 4, 
Delight yourself in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. If your delight is in God, he's going to fulfill your desires. A third thing to do to get a good night's sleep, recognize the sovereignty of God, align your values with God's values. Number three, pray to God. Remember, he knows more about your circumstances than you know. None of us knows what's going to happen with this next president. I don't think any of us have any idea what's going to happen here. But we can be confident that God knows. God has not promised to preserve this country. But as Christians, our primary allegiance is not to this country, but it is to the kingdom of Christ. And so for us, whatever happens becomes for us a platform for gospel proclamation. And so whether they're suffering or not suffering, inconvenience or convenience, these are all means for gospel proclamation for us. We need to have the the attitude of Paul who, for me to live is Christ, but to die is gain. Is that really my hard attitude? If it's not, I may very well have a problem sleeping tonight for fear that something's going to happen that I don't want to happen. But if my heart is is focused on utilizing this set of circumstances to clarify the gospel to people who are confused about the gospel, who understand why Christians are against but don't know what it is that the gospel is for, to clarify the gospel in those circumstances, that for me becomes an opportunity for good. So we can maximize trouble for the kingdom because that person's ultimate good for him is going to be to get saved and to come into a saving relationship with Christ. Ultimately, that's what's good for him. And outside of that, no matter what good he experiences, ultimately he's doomed. So we pray to God. Number four, rehearse God's faithfulness just from a practical standpoint. Uh, If you are laying in your bed and you're having trouble getting your thinking straight, one of the things that helps is to recount the times when God has been faithful in the past to you, both in your life and in the lives of his saints. That is encouraging. Here's an example, Psalm 3, and there's a gazillion more in the Bible. And you know of people who have uh, experienced uh, help from God. Rehearse that. Number five, we saw this in the last verse. It's this, shift your focus. Get the focus off of yourself and get to work praying and ministering to others. As long as you are self-focused, you're going to be unsettled. When you become Christocentric, Christ-centered, then your priorities are in the right place. Uh, These principles are consistent with a a model for dealing with uh, difficult thinking uh, developed by a biblical counselor named Dave Pallison. Let me give you his six principles, and notice how they are consistent with what we see unfolding in the psalm. He says this, he calls this fending off the barbarians in your mind. He says this, number one, here's what you do, name the pressures. Notice that's what David did. He named them, name the pressures. You always worry about something, but what things tend to hook you? What good reasons, quote-unquote, good reasons do you have for your anxiety? I mean, if you're anxious, you always think you have good reason for it. What are those good reasons? Sometimes the very act of naming what the things are helps you clarify these things, and it's helpful. Number two, identify how you express anxiety, he says. How does anxiety show up in your life? Uh, Do you have a feeling of panic clutching at your throat? 
Do you have a vague feeling of uneasiness or repetitive obsessive thoughts? Maybe you have outbursts of anger. These kinds of things reveal what's in your heart. Number three, he says, ask yourself this question, why am I anxious? If you're experiencing anxiety. He says, worry always has its inner logic. What has taken God's place on the throne of your heart? Fifth, which promise of Jesus speaks to to you most? Take to heart the promises of Christ. Five, go to your father. Your father cares about the things you worry about. Leave your worries with him. And then six, give. Notice how these so parallel the principles we just saw in Psalm 3. And give, he says, do and say something constructive. Care for someone else. It's your father's pleasure to give you the kingdom. Brothers, sisters, if you are in Christ, you have a kingdom. You are heirs to a kingdom, to spiritual treasures laid up in heavenly places. You have a new DNA because you've been regenerated. You've been converted. You have a new identity in Christ. You are a Christian as your primary identifier. These are some principles that can assist you in getting a good night's sleep in the midst of trauma. Now, this doesn't rule out uh, health issues that might be uh, presenting themselves in your lives. For example, in just the, the minute that I have left, my grandfather came home from World War II, married my grandmother. 25 years later, or 25, at 25 years old, uh, my father was born. When he was 25 years old, I was born. So there's this generational thing. Grandfather was a World War II vet. His father was a World War I vet. He had an ancestor who was in the Civil War as a general. Uh, ironically, incidentally, my grandmother, from the time that she was a young lady all the way up to when she was 80 years old, she didn't sleep at night. It would be 2 a.m. consistently before she could go to sleep. It was really interesting. My father has always had a sleeping problem. Both of my sisters have sleeping problems. I have had a sleeping problem. It's called narcolepsy. It presents like this. You're awake at night, but you tend to be alert or tend to be drowsy in the daytime. It's connected genetically uh, to all of us because of the strong family thing. It's so much so that my younger sister was the subject of a documentary on this issue. And when she was in college, there was a team, a camera crew, that followed her around college trying to catch her falling asleep places. And so they would show up in her class, and, you know, they've got the camera on her, and when she started to get drowsy, they was like, oh, she's falling asleep, and they had to wake her up. So all that to say, this is a sleep problem that runs in my family. So over the past number of years, even when I was seven, eight years old, I didn't sleep until two, three, four in the morning. So I would lay in the bed in the dark all alone all these hours by myself as a child. And until January this past year, that's been my life's pattern. I don't know why I started sleeping, uh, but it keeps me from being as productive as I used to be. You know, I used to be able to read things in the two, at 2 a.m., and I learned Hebrew at 4 a.m., that sort of thing, so you know, I'm not as productive as I was before. But the point to all that is this. I'm pretty familiar with the kinds of things that make this worse, that that increase um, sleeplessness at night. And what I can say to you is that 
although you may not be able to be healed of whatever your physical issue is, you can manage it better by applying biblical principles. We know that. And from experience, I can tell you that. It so happens both my sisters with narcolepsy are medical doctors. And they've spent a lot of time working at this, too. But these biblical principles are applicable to you regardless of your health situation or your circumstances in life. You may not be able to get a good night's sleep like David did because you have some issue, but you can mitigate the impact of those issues on your life and on your patterns of, of uh, peace and anxiety. So these are some things to help you get a good night's sleep. And as we see a new government uh, shape up in this country, we may all need to get a good night's sleep sooner than, than later. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for its uh, clarity and its relevance to us, even in the 21st century in this Western country. I pray that you'll help us to uh, seize every platform of gospel proclamation that you bring to us, especially over the next few months during this time of uncertainty as we seek to minister the gospel to the lost. Help us to not place our hopes on the wrong things or to value the wrong things, but to have our hope in Christ and to value Christ and his kingdom above all. We pray this in your name. Amen.